Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for another episode of What the Politics. I'm Emily, and Victoria is here as well. And today we're diving into a topic of national security and the transparency around that, the issues surrounding that, and the concerns that you know are rising from national security um, breaches and conversations that have been had, you know, for decades. Um, So I'm going to let Victoria introduce our very special guest for today. And our special guest for today is Bradley Moss, but I want to let him go ahead and explain what he does and what his background is. Law firm of Mark S. Zade, PC. Uh, We are a national security employment firm uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. We primarily handle any number of personnel or security clearance proceedings for individuals within the intelligence community, whether they be uh, contractors, federal civilian employees, or military personnel. Uh, We also handle a range of Freedom of Information Act uh, litigation, typically on behalf of either nonprofits or media entities, uh, as well as representing on certain certain occasions uh, national security whistleblowers, individuals who particularly uh, need to lawfully raise concerns regarding uh, fraud, waste and abuse, illegal activity within the federal government, um, but who need to do it in a, particularly in a context in which there's classified information involved, and they want to lawfully raise that concern to the appropriate entities, both within their agency and to Congress, and without running afoul of uh, any rules or laws that would impact their clearance or potentially expose them to criminal liability. Mm-hmm. And so before we get into the more serious topics, one of the things that we like to do to help our guests understand the personality of the person we're interviewing, um, do you have a favorite sports team? Do you root for any any football Chicago teams, Cubs. basketball teams? Chicago Cubs. Chicago Cubs. Okay. Born yeah. And, born, born and raised. All right. Nice. So you're used to this cold weather. You're not, you're not shocked by it. This isn't cold as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> See, I'm over here freezing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so let's let's get into um um so one of the most recent events that have kind of been pushed to the wayside because of the COVID uh, relief bill is the fact that there has been um uh, a hack into three federal agencies, um, the Solar Winds hack. Are you familiar with kind of the background on what what's going on there? Generally speaking, yes, I haven't followed it in uh, considerable depth. There's just been a lot of other things going on. But, yeah, I'm, gen- I'm generally aware of the details. And I know that there's some more information that just came out, I think, yesterday about the number of accounts at Treasury that were hacked as part of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And do you have any concerns or are there anything that's kind of like raising your eyebrows about what this may mean for, for our future? Well, it raises the larger concern, and this is not a partisan issue, it's not a Democrat or Republican issue, it's the extent to which our cyber infrastructure remains lacking, I guess is the best, you know, descriptor I could use for it. 
um, to ward off some of these foreign hacks. I mean, look, there's always going to be various parties, whether they're foreign nation states or uh, simply organizations who are going to try to infiltrate um, any number of uh, parts of our infrastructure, whether it be the federal government, state and local authorities, whatever. Um, what is concerning for me was the extent to which the federal government remains behind in fully implementing a lot of the uh, high-minded and you know noteworthy F uh, ideas they have for how they're going to secure their internal digital infrastructure. There's been a lot of good ideas, a lot of good reforms proposed, a lot of things they've been trying to implement, trying to uh, update all the legacy systems within the federal government and trying to put everything uh, in, on encrypted clouds and stuff like that. But there's, it's been very slow moving. It's been very caught up in bureaucratic uh, difficulties and red tape. And it hasn't been helped by the last four years of having an administration that seemed to be trying to do things, be trying to improve the situation in spite of as opposed to being supported by the White House. Um, there's a lot of situations in which the me you know, messaging comes from above. It comes from the senior levels. And when every time there's a hack like this, the first thing to come out of the White House, and particularly to come from the twi Twitter feed of the president, is to downplay it, say everything's fine, there's no big issue, the Russians aren't involved, don't worry about it, yada, yada it sends the wrong message. It doesn't mean that the people in the trenches, you know, the system administrators and the line people trying to fix this aren't still going to be doing their job, but it undermines morale and it provides a depressing, uh, you know, kind of overarching message for those who are trying to fix this problem and trying to recognize that there is a problem. Whether or not that will change and to, to what extent that will change with the next administration remains to be seen. But people need to really start grasping the extent to which we are probably a good generation behind on our cyber defenses within the federal government. And there's a lot of work to be done. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to um, let's let's talk a little bit about the response that has been coming from from the current administration. So there has been times when the current administration and in past events when when hacks like these happen to kind of downplay what has happened. Wouldn't that be a strategy that might be beneficial if there's some work going on behind the scenes? Because if people are understanding that these hacks are are um, being, it could kind of cause a scare. Do you do you know mm -hmm. what I'm talking about? Like it, it it may cause some people to to overreact and and although it, it's important to know that these hacks are happening and that we are behind and what you just said, a generation behind and some of the um, security measures that we could be taking. What about the opposite way if this was completely open and, and there have been some um, uh, critiques from um, keeping information out in the public? Sure. So, I mean, so there's a couple things that could be done that the incoming administration will hopefully be able to provide a sort of a different course in terms of how they handle this. One is obviously the public messaging. You know, it's not enough that, that we just have people such as the Secretary of State um, and the Attorney General, you know, cl clearly attributing who this is, who was behind these kind of attacks and taking steps to try to respond. It has to come ultimately from the White House. And there has to be support from those senior political individuals, including the president, him or herself, 
um, to to back up the conclusions of the subject matter experts. So when NSA, when CIA, when whoever comes forward saying this is who did this, even if it's politically disadvantageous to whoever the president is at that given time, the president's got to be able to back that up and got to be able to provide support so that the intelligence community can do its job to respond. And that's always been part of the problem for the last four years is that the subject matter experts are still trying to do their best to address these issues, but have to walk on eggshells around this current president to avoid angering or upsetting him because he's very sensitive about anything tied to Russia. And so it undermines the ability to truly uh, push forward sort of more comprehensive or more substantial response efforts. I mean, there's been ongoing fights over the future of digital infrastructure in the federal government and things along the lines of this big DOD project called JEDI, um, which has been caught up in litigation after litigation after litigation, due in no small part to the fact that the president can't stop trying to interfere in it because one of the bidders for this big digital project was Amazon. And Amazon, of course, is owned by Jeff Bezos, and Jeff Bezos also owns the Washington Post, and so the president can't mouth shut and can't stop interfering. And so a project that's supposed to, whatever you might think of the different parties involved in it, and whatever the benefits or possible downsides to the project are, it's designed to try to update the digital infrastructure, is constantly being hampered and slowed down because the White House can't get out of DOD's way and keeps interfering. And so that becomes one of those things where if the federal government, which doesn't move very fast as it is, can come back to some semblance of normalcy and competency in trying to perform its you know next generation responsibilities, it gives us a chance to at least catch up to where we should be by this point in responding, not only from a defensive standpoint to ward off these assaults, you know, from these various nation state actors such as Russia or China or whoever, but put us in a position then to respond publicly and in the diplomatic realm um, that we haven't really been able to do. I mean, there's a lot of things that have been done to the, in, to the current administration's credit when responding to attacks from Russia and stuff along those lines, but it's always been in spite of the current president as opposed to led by him. So would you say, you know, from your standpoint as, you know, a national security attorney, do you think it's more beneficial at the end of the day for, you know, the government to be as transparent as possible with these national security issues? Or is there kind of a fine line with, you know, certain situations need to be, you know, handled a little differently or, you know, kept under wraps a little bit more because of the security aspect of it? So, you know, what's your personal opinion on, you know, what that transparency should be? Sure. So I'm, I mean, I'm always going to be in favor of as much public transparency as humanly possible and is, you know, consistent with national security priorities to ensure that the American public is aware of what's going on and they're kept fully mm-hmm. informed. I always have an issue with, you know, so much secrecy that the public really doesn't grasp the severity of the situation. But even to the, even when we're in a con, you know, with some of these details, such as these attacks where there's just some information that can't be disclosed publicly, it comes, it comes not so much there, the issue of, you know, what can I post? on a public website, you know, from DOD to inform the public, but ensuring that Congress is fully informed because a lot of the authorities and a lot of the um, responses that the U.S. government would have to make will require congressional involvement, require authorization, appropriations, any number of things. But when we have this unceasing and never-ending transparency fight between these two branches, and there's always going to be some element to that, but when it's 
so relentless as it is now, it deprives Congress of being fully aware of the nature of the situation. It causes friction and it undermines any ability for those two branches to do what they need to do to properly respond on behalf of the public. And instead, they're so caught up in bitter, you know, interbranch fighting that they can't respond properly to the threat, whether it's authorizing new authorities for those different federal agencies to do take different types of actions, whether it's providing additional money to hire additional folks to build additional equipment, whatever it is, that requires congressional uh, participation and approval. And if we can't find a way for these two darn political branches to talk to each other, you know, that's going to be a never-ending problem that's going to continue to undermine us. And so that's where transparency, at least between those two branches, has to increase to some extent. Mm -hmm. And I want to get into one of the most controversial figures in in recent American history when it comes to whistleblowing and national security. I want to talk about Edward Snowden. Mm-hmm. And and his um, how he released some information from the National Security Agency while he was working as a CIA employee. So currently he is in outside of the United States. I believe he's in Russia or, or some other country where he's so he won't be prosecuted. As we know, he's still in Russia. So what is um, your take on what he did and um, where he should go moving forward as a citizen of the United States. Yeah, so Edward Snowden has been a bit of a hot-button issue for a long time now, for seven years since he first made uh, his leaks to the public uh, through Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras. Um, a lot of people come down into very extremes when it comes to Edward Snowden. They either think he's a hero that deserves you know, a parade through Times Square, or they think he's a traitor who should be executed. I come down more along in the middle in the sense that I absolutely believe he is a criminal fugitive. I absolutely believe he broke the law and that he should face trial and potentially time in jail. What I don't agree with is that he is he committed treason or is a traitor or is a Russian spy. I haven't seen anything that makes me believe that is the case. Obviously, who knows what could come out if there ever is a trial on the uh, League of Classified Information issues, if there's information the government has, you know, I could always reevaluate that assessment. But as far as I'm concerned, he's a simple criminal in the sense that he was a clearance holder. He had access to classified information and documentation. He took it out of the secured space and gave it to an unauthorized party, namely Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras. That is a, you know, black letter law. That is a violation of the Espionage Act and a couple other statutory provisions. That is a crime. There are degrees to which the nature of the punishment could be reduced based on some of the public interest aspect. A lot of the complaints you'd hear from Edward Snowden's supporters is that he can't argue a public interest defense at trial. That's true and it's not true. He can't nullify the charges based on a public interest defense because there's no such thing in the Espionage Act. He can mitigate the severity of punishment at a sentencing based on public interest. That's always something that can be done but that still would involve him being found guilty and criminally liable. So, for example, if I was the U.S. government, if Edward Stone was ever finally extradited to the United States and put on trial, I would exclude from the charges any of the uh, issues he, that Edward Stone leaked when it came to some of the questionable NSA surveillance of, U, of United States citizens um, and surveillance connected with the United States, things like Section 215, 
um, and Section 702, those programs that were, that were subsequently subject to extensive legislative debate, if I were the DOJ, I would exclude that from the entire trial because you don't need it. There was so much other information that Edward Snowden leaked that had nothing to do with surveillance in the United States, whether it was surveillance operations in Afghanistan, the Bahamas, different parts of Europe, uh, he leaked details on a surveillance submarine that, inter- that was operating in the Mediterranean, any number of things, you know, surveillance on China that the U.S. government could bring as part of the charges that there would be no public interest element that would have any persuasive weight and he would still be found criminally liable and still likely go to jail for many years. Um, that would be the way I would approach this. I would never put up for debate the issue of whether or not, you know, the Section 215 program, which is now lapsed and I don't think it's ever going to be revived, you know, whether or not he should be criminally charged for that program, because it just, it's, it's not necessary. There's so much other information he leaked. And if I were Edward Snowden, you know, if that was all he was really worried about, he could have gone through lawyers to bring things to Congress's attention, but he didn't take that route. And so now he lives in Russia and as far as I can tell, is going to avoid ever coming back to the United States unless he gets a pardon. Mm-hmm. And part of uh, that conversation that we were just talking about is the Espionage Act. And when it comes to the Espionage Act, from my understanding, it's the sources who get charged for under um, for violations of this act. But when it comes to another controversial figure, Julian Assange, he was the publisher of WikiLeaks. The sources were kind of what weren't him. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. So Julian Assange. So. There was that was an interesting one in terms of when those charges were brought. So prior to him being charged, but um, when it was becoming very clear that there was going to be charges brought, I actually had published a piece in the Atlantic saying he's not worth it. Don't bother trying to indict Julian Assange over the publishing of what he received from Chelsea Manning, you know, the infamous cables from the State Department and things along those lines, because. Given his role as a quote unquote publisher, whatever I, whatever you might think of Julian Assange, and I personally despise the man and utterly can't stand him, but given the role he had at WikiLeaks and the and the the, the way in which he operated in terms of publishing the documents, if he can be indicted and prosecuted for publishing that, even though he wasn't the one who had the clearance and he wasn't the source and he didn't pay for any of it, he just received documents and published them. If he could be indicted, then the New York Times can be indicted. Fox News indicted, the Post, CNN, anybody, any media outlet could be indicted because there would be no concept of what is and is, you know, what is and is not a media outlet. It would be a free for all and anybody could be subject to liability. And then you have the problem of Congress deciding what qualifies as a media entity and is immune from that kind of prosecution and what is not. And that's not what I want the federal government to start deciding is who is and is not part of the media. Um, so when Julian Assange was originally indicted, it was based on very narrow and limited computer uh, fraud, uh, computer hacking charges that I was fine with because that he took the steps beyond what journalists are specifically told to do and not to do. But the supplemental indictment, and it pained me to have to say it, the supplemental indictment went beyond that, brought the Espionage Act charges against him as a publisher and has caused me to say, Whatever I might personally think of Julian Assange, I don't want him prosecuted on those charges because I don't want to open up that Pandora's box. So what would you say, you know, you were speaking about whistleblowers um, 
earlier. And that was actually one of our topics of conversation, I believe, in our last podcast. So I'm kind of interested to know, you know, bringing that into national security, um, you know, is there a fine line or what is that fine line, would you say, between somebody who's a whistleblower and then somebody who's truly just, you know, exposing national security and um, to the public? Sure. So there's there's three different types is, is the way I view it. One is the true, you know, lawful whistleblower, which is someone who follows the proper procedures set forth in law, the federal law goes only through those procedures, provides the information to the authorized official, and does nothing else. Whatever comes of it, whatever changes are or are not made is ultimately neither here nor there. All that person did is they came forward to whether it was the within the agency or was to the proper congressional in, uh, committees, provided their information, went back to work. That's a whistleblower, in, as far as I'm concerned, a lawful whistleblower. That person did their job. They didn't break any rules. They didn't break any laws. They didn't expose any classified information on authorized authorities. What Congress or the federal government chooses to do about soap disclosure is not really their concern in the end. They just want to make sure the proper information is put in front of the authorized officials. The second group are what I like to call the martyr whistleblowers. This is the Edward Snowdens and the Chelsea Mannings of the world. People who believe they found something that reflects, um, you know, violations of law, fraud, you know, fraud, waste, and abuse, any number, of those, any number of those things that would follow the dictionary definition of whistleblowing. But they've decided they're not going to comply with the proper protocols because they don't think it will do what they want. Their goal is not just to bring the information forward. Their goal is to meet a particular desired change in policy or law as a result of it. So their goal there is not just to ensure proper people have the information, but they want to make sure the change occurs. And if the change hasn't occurred, then apparently they failed which is not a whistleblower, in my view, but an advocate. And so when these individuals, such as Chelsea Manning or Edward Snowden, leak the information to the media, yes, they've identified in some cases things that certainly warranted being raised as a whistleblowing concern. But they went to the unauthorized parties, they exposed the classified information, and now they're subject to criminal penalties because they went outside those protocols. The third group, obviously, are true spies or people who are just selling information. You think of the Jonathan Pollards of the world. You think of the Robert Hansons of the world, people who literally took classified documents and sold it to a foreign party for money. Are there any acts or not, excuse me, not any acts, any pieces of legislation that um, is concerning you that you think that the average citizen should kind of be made aware of? So it's not so much that the, the, there's any legislation that's concerning me so much as there's legislation that um, is currently being voted on one of the intelligence authorization bills that had to have some worthwhile reforms stripped out of it. Um, as part of right now, I mean, it's uh, we're, we're a couple of days before Christmas, and you know, Congress is going through all the national defense authorization, intelligence authorization legislation for the upcoming year, and trying to vote this, these massive packages out. Um, there were whistleblower reforms particularly with respect to people bringing uh, information to Congress that was inserted into some of those, uh, some of that legislation in order to strengthen the protections for those whistleblowers. And if you think back to the impeachment saga from a year ago, uh, the intelligence community whistleblower uh, who my boss worked, uh, was one of the lawyers defending that individual through, a, uh, not through our firm, but through our colleague, uh, 
Andrew Mackay's firm, Compass Rose, uh, that individual had certain protections as a lawful whistleblower. We don't, you know, that person only gone through the proper channels. They didn't expose classified information. But what that process exposed was when the president himself is trying to out that person and get that person in trouble, when members of Congress are trying to expose that person, there's limited remedies that currently exist for that person to respond. And the system never contemplated such a situation. So what's concerning is that in order to get some of this, comp- some of this legislation through right now at the end of the year, their compromises are being made to strip out those whistleblower protections. And going forward, you know, if you're a conservative worried about what, you know, say the Biden administration might do, the, ne- the next whistleblower coming out who might be something to out, you know, expose fraud in the Biden administration is going to have no greater protections than the intelligence community whistleblower had when trying to expose what Donald Trump had done. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, those are all the questions that we have prepared for you today. Um, again, thank you so much for your time because this is, it, it, it is a holiday week and I can imagine, you know, you're probably ready to, to enjoy your time off if you have any. Time off? What's that? I was going to say, yeah, like in, in this day and age, I'm not sure if anyone truly has time off. But. Exactly. So, yes, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Not a problem. Have a good one, guys. Stay safe. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us in our conversation with Mr. Moss. This is a very interesting topic, especially for Emily and I as reporters. And we are advocates of transparency and government accountability. But there is a fine line that I think that we all need to make sure to explore and define and see how it evolves over the years. So thank you so much for joining us on this episode of What the Politics, and we'll see you next week. Make sure to tune in on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.